Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And each episode of Book Music, we focus on one specific book about music. It could be about music history. It could be a memoir from a musician or somebody in the music world, the music business, or it could even be a work of fiction, as long as it has a character, a fictional character that's somehow tied to music. And today, we're going to put this great focus, like like this in obsessively focus on a book mm-hmm. called You Lose Yourself, You Reappear, Bob Dylan and the Voices of a Lifetime by Paul Morley. And the great thing is we have Paul Morley here. Welcome, Paul. Yes, I am here. thank god (laughs) (laughs) well like bob dylan are you really there because sometimes with bob dylan i'm not really sure if if we're talking to bob dylan or we're actually getting direct communication from bob dylan yeah well that's i guess we are here he doesn't exist (laughs) 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 well kim lee i read your book we just dwell into your book uh and we just uh, and we both love it um you're one of my favorite music writers or one of my favorite writers. I just love how you, you yourself obsessively dwell into your subject matter and you just sort of dig things out of there, out of that, out of a person's work. Uh, and I really enjoyed going on that adventure with you. You're like the driver and we're like the passengers in the car, but today we're going to share the front seat with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, can you tell us about, you know, you mentioned about the voices of Dylan throughout your book, and it's your subtitle, uh, Bob Dylan and the Voices of a Lifetime. Can you tell us about what, what do you mean by the voices of Dylan? Well, it's it's something I've been thinking about for quite a while, that the way into writing about Bob Dylan, who's obviously written about a lot um, by many great writers, including himself, is that I noticed that a lot of these books, especially the more academic ones, the more legitimately academic ones, tended to write a lot inevitably about his words, his language, which, of course, you know, you, you could go on forever doing that. One of the things I've always really loved about Bob Dylan is is his voice and, indeed, his voices. And I, I started to realise that there were lots of voices in the way that there are lots of him. And in his songs, you know, each song is, is a lot of songs. And I, and I thought that might be a really good way for me to get into writing about Bob Dylan that it's not actually being done. There's, there's no real precedent for that. Nobody sort of suggests that his genius might lie in his voice as much as his words or his songwriting. Mm-hmm. But for me, very much um, these voices. And they, they start to represent how he's changed and his shape-shifting, his molten nature, because... You can essentially follow him back and forwards through his entire recording life and life following those voices. And, you know, the idea also of a voice before you knew there was a voice before he started recording and then break up, breaking up his um, voices into different eras and periods of, uh, of music. And, uh, you know, at first I thought, well, there's probably, what, there's five, six, seven voices. And then, then obviously it's... As I thought about it, there's, there's, there's many more than that. And also his vo- he, he vocally comes across in different ways in his photography. His photography is a kind of a voice. Um, the, the, the image of him is, is kind of a voice. His radio show, there was another voice. And so mm-hmm. it gave me a great opportunity to, to write a book about Bob Dylan amongst the many that I didn't think had been done. 
what is your first introduction to the voice for you? I mean, when's the first time you actually heard Bob Dylan voice? Well, funny enough, there's another voice, the voice of those that, that sing his songs, which is also yes. a Dylan voice. So I really first came into Bob Dylan when I was probably about 13. And, you know, as much as I've either constructed it in a Dylan-esque way or it's the truth, I think possibly one of the first times I ever heard a Bob Dylan voice, it was actually Olivia Newton-John, think <laughs> If Not For You. That's an interesting uh, introduction. 13. And then eventually, you know, I would find very quickly Bob Dylan because I came in an odd sort of way. There were pop stars I loved in the early 70s, like David Bowie or Mark Bowen or Sid mm-hmm. Barrett, who were giving you clues about Bob Dylan um, in their song, their appearance. And, and, and David Bowie directly on Hunky Dory wrote a song about mm-hmm. Bob Dylan. Uh, Mark Bowen wrote about um, Bob in uh, Telegram Sam. These 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 were the Google searches of their day. You, you heard your favorite uh-huh. from one and you would go and find out who this person was, Bob Dylan. So I'd find Bob Dylan at 13, 14. And uh, when I found him in 1970, 1971, to some extent, it seems daft now, but um, it, it would have appeared that all his work was behind us, if you like. He was a 60s character and we were in uh-huh. the 70s and one of the 70s to be art of. So when I first arrived at Bob Dylan, it, it, it almost felt like he'd made all his albums and, and, and everything else would be him doing whatever aging, you know, pop stars were going to do that because there was no real precedent. And, you know, I, I started to gather the material from behind me, like Blonde on Blonde, Highway 61, mm-hmm. first, the, the, the early, you know, solo albums, the first two or three albums and compiling Bob Dylan. But it was retrospective, you know, um, mm-hmm. it took a while for Bob Dylan as we um, knew him later to start releasing new, in my, my period of, of listening, new albums. So um, at first I built up um, his, his, his albums from the 60s when I was 14, 15, 16. And then the first album I actually bought of a new Bob Dylan that, that hadn't you know come from the 60s was um, Planet Waves. So to, oh. that's where my real love affair started with Bob Dylan. That's sort of like his reunion album with the band in a way, right? Well, yeah, when, once you start to piece it together or piece together other pe- people's interpretation of Bob Dylan, which is also interesting, you know, when you write a book about Bob Dylan, what are you writing about? Are you writing about him or uh, the histories that have been laid down around him, the histories he's tried to avoid or the histories he's, he's accepted? And so at that point, yes, there seemed it seemed to be a series of comebacks that Bob Dylan was making, oddly enough, after after the 60s, after the the you know right. legendary motorcycle crash after the disappearance into Woodstock is turning his back on that kind of exotic oh. pop name of the mid sixties the electric mythology it seemed that 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 he he was making a kind of comeback but I but by then I was already quite besotted with him there's something that instinctively kicks in when you start listening to Bob Dylan that you realise there's more than go, there's more going on than and initially meets the eye and ear it's, these aren't just songs these are these are bigger than right. songs. They fit into a greater puzzle. So I was already dwelling and obsessing over him, and then and then from Planet Waves, you know, it was quite an interesting period because there was a sudden, real intense period of, of Bob Dylan activity as he, he he worked with the band on Planet Waves. He'd done that great before the Flood tour, which almost, in its ferocity, mm-hmm. anticipated punk punk rock, which was still two or three years off. And then obviously in 1975, he released. Um, you know what, what? What turned out to be an album that, even within the fairly straightforward mythology of Bob Dylan, seemed to sort of better his albums of the '60s, "Blood on the Tracks," and, mm-hmm. and this, you know, I was 18. This seemed an absolute gift to me at the time, 
because it was almost like that, that for, for our generation, which then sort of meant something, I'd suddenly got my own Bob. It wasn't blonde on blonde Bob Dylan. It wasn't mm-hmm. Harding blood Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. It was my Bob Dylan, this extraordinary record that even at 18 I could sense was some kind of masterpiece. Uh, and, and and so I, I kind of slid into Bob Dylan that way, and then and then eventually you you realise that that Bob Dylan himself is moving around in all sorts of different directions, and you just do the best you can to keep up with him. My introduction to Bob Dylan is actually for the Birds uh, version of uh, Mr. Tambourine Man. Yeah, yeah, that was like my first, and I knew it was a Bob Dylan song because it seemed to be almost advertised like a song by Bob Dylan performed yes. by the Birds, and then yeah. I Got You Babe by uh, Sonny and Cher. <laughs> so that was Bob Dylan's voice to me. Yeah. And then when I heard Bob Dylan, oh my God. <laughs> when I heard him cover those songs, not cover, excuse me, <laughs> cover songs, when he did his original versions of those songs, it was so, um, well, of course it was so striking, but I don't know if I even liked it. It was this sort yeah. of, um, it was a music from another uh, it was a music from another time, another place, another universe. Sonny and Cher's version of "I Got You, Babe" spoke to me as a ch- you know child or early teen at that time, as well as the birds. Um, but it's yeah, it was just a strange disconnection or juxtaposition hearing Dylan's version compared to like the birds and Sonny and Cher's doing doing a Dylan song. I never I never thought. Um, I mean, I got you, babe. I, I, I figured it was written by Sonny Bono. Have I got uh, Yeah. <laughs> and the, um, yeah, we, we can imagine in some universes written by Bob Dylan, but um, I know what you mean about Bob Dylan's songs, first of all, by other people, because it was yes. almost like initially the, there was a world that didn't allow Bob to sing his own songs for the, for the general public because they were so worried he might alienate them with this sort of sound that he had of his voice and, they would give yes. them the the softer singers, the Peter Pauls and Marys, the the chiming birds, and um, gave it a sort of uh, disguise. He disguised himself almost, and then once he it had been revealed, he he, he wrote these um, extraordinary songs. He he was allowed to sing them himself for the general public, and and people would would accept that they were great songs. They might not have known, hearing them first mm-hmm. of all coming through Bob, that uh, it was like they sent out little kind of um, people who could test the waters, you know. Um, yeah. Tighten them up a little bit, uh, 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 disguise their subversive nature. They were subversive about the subversiveness. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm raised in, in AM radio in America, and you know the birds and Sonny and Cher were very AM, you know, music AM rec- radio friendly. Kimley, because we're a different age bracket. What was your Kimley? What was your first introduction? I was Tambourine to? Man by the Birds as well. Yeah, really? Wow. Me. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I was I was very young, but I do remember hearing that on the radio all the time. And yeah, I didn't. I didn't really start listening to Dylan seriously until I was maybe nineteen, twenty. Um, but I definitely like him better. Like I, I didn't actually care much for the Birds' Tambourine Man when I was a kid. It just wasn't. I don't know. Oh. It didn't speak to me at all. And then when I finally started listening to Dylan, because Dylan's voice is so edgy in a way, you know, and right. to me that had so much more interest to it than the Birds' version. Wow. The way Dylan sings, a song of his could be a number of different things all at the same time. Right. When they're covered as, as as spectacularly as they are often by great singers, they they tend to be just that one thing. And what I, I realised, you know, with my equivalent of it being Olivia Newton-John and then, say, George Harrison, who also did If Not For You, then you hear Dylan. 
and you realize that you know there's there's a more, a more complicated um uh thing going on that at first you don't particularly notice if you come to it through the interpreters but i do like the idea that if you put together i think i mentioned it in the book you put together all the great cover verses of a bob dylan song what you end up with is another bob dylan voice but even if he'd never sung any of them, somehow you would still get an idea of what his voice is. It's interesting about Dylan is that, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there's this a disconnect with his original folk bands, his folk music bands, because Dylan, you know, was sold to them or I don't say sold. That's, they adopted him as sort of the folk singer of, of their generation. Yet Dylan is obviously a, an artist who makes up characters and identities he's you know he's not he, he he bob dylan's not bob dylan he's not bob zimmerman and he was bob zimmerman one time but then he he transformed himself into another identity yeah. and started making up his own past and his history and um i'm gonna presume that you find that aspect of bob dylan very interesting well absolutely because um in a way, it, 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 it broke open the idea of rock and pop because his influence wasn't just uh, musical and vocal and lyrical, which was in, you know immense and influenced people that probably didn't even realise they were being influenced by what Bob Dylan was doing. But just the idea that he could um, uh, announce that the idea of being a pop star, a rock star, even though that wasn't necessarily the, the main intention, was it, it could be a continual performance. And um, you didn't want to be the whole point in a way of being an artist being a musician was that you didn't want to be pinned down and right. uh, what i always found fascinating about dylan is that as soon as there was a chance he was being pinned down he he would he would he would shift he would lose himself and then he would he would reappear somewhere down the line and there was this constant um changing of of, of who he was because I, I think also he was such a student of music such a um an observer an interpreter of, of musical history that, mm. that once he'd interpreted it one way, it wasn't enough for him and he wanted to interpret another. So he's moving very quickly. The audience are having trouble keeping up with him, you know, almost by the end of the 60s. They had to be geniuses in the first place to keep up with him because it was so kind of out of nowhere. Uh, and, and what I love is that w when the, 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 the British musicians like the Beatles and, and, and the Stones and Traffic, these, these kind of groups start to kind of work out, they, they want to be like Bob Dylan. They want to take it that seriously they want to do things with songs they want to make them longer they want to make yeah. them 10 minutes long they want to go to the country like he did with the band in woodstock you know once they do that he's he's already moving somewhere else it's like he doesn't want to be crowded out you know so mm -hmm. he's, he's got a he's, he's got something about him that that doesn't want you to um come to an immediate kind of understanding of who he is in case that fixes him in place and even as a kid, even as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, it's like he's anticipating the next few decades and how he wants to keep moving mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and keep changing his position and, and uh, following you know, what it is he wants to do with his songs and what he wants to put in them uh, and, and what helps him do that, what helps him find himself when occasionally he does lose himself is, is that commitment to, to working out how to put music together in a, in a different different sort of way and 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 that's that that contributes to what appears to be his his changing image all the time this this need he has as a creative artist sometimes to completely lose himself as he tries to find out where he wants to go next but where he wants to go next must be on his terms where he hasn't already been i was um reading an article in the new york times yesterday and uh, there was it was talking specifically about his sense of humor 
and uh, how people tend not to comment on that nearly as much as they do on his sort of seriousness. But he's really quite cheeky and, and oh, you know, he's, he's, you he's know no highly tuned sense of humor. Always. Um, why do you think people don't, you know, focus on that very much? They just, he's so seriously studied, you know. <laughs> well, that's the that's the that's what's interesting. I find that um, there is it, it, you have to pay attention to Bob Dylan. It, it could be easily dismissed in all ways if you don't pay attention to what he's doing and how it all fits together. And the fact that a large amount of it is like some great, you know, sort of he's as much a, a sort of a contemporary of a Lenny Bruce as much as anything in terms right. of the, he's playing around with expectation. And, um, the, the, you know, I, 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 last few years, always loved going to see Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan and sitting as close to the stage as I can. So I can see that look in his eye, the, the, <laughs> the chief, you know, and right. it is interesting those that dismiss him because they, they bring their own solemnity, their own, um, seriousness to what for him is, is much more playful. It, certainly yeah. in terms of what presents himself, the songs are deadly serious. There's solemnity in those, although they can also be hilarious. But he himself is is not often taking himself as seriously as as some of his um, uh, you know obsessive fans. Right. I was watching Rolling Thunder review the other night for a second time, and you know there's lots of close-ups of his face, and you yeah. see him like bugging his eyes and grimacing and darting his eyes. You know, he's just he's just so cheeky. You know. <laughs> yeah, he's having the time of his life. You know, I always felt the Rolling Thunder tour was his sort of dream ideal way of, of performance you know that kind of ramshackle circus that just travels around from venue right. to venue right just, i love seeing him at the wheel of the van you know <laughs> that's, i always thought that was a, a little hint really of what he ended up doing with the never-ending tour you know just mm -hmm. just keeping going on keeping on you know from from town to town city to city you know always on the road always finding a new vista even if he goes back to a city he's been before it's a new place for him i i kind of love that uh, element of bob dylan as well the, the way that he's just um constantly traveling it's it's something that i wanted to get in the book and make the book itself a, a kind of travelogue where mm -hmm. i'm just dylan the traveler as if he himself is a kind of location as well and he's traveling through it his own sense of, of his own location. I, I love that idea that Dylan has, has treated life as, as just this constant movement. Yeah, it's interesting. The book is definitely not a traditional biography in any sense. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. a chronological listing of events. Um, it's definitely much more getting into how he developed as an artist and, and the way that he's affected all of us in so many myriad of ways. It's... Um, so I was really happy about that because I was kind of like, oh boy, it's like, you know, it's, it's hard when you're writing about somebody who's written, written about so much already. Um, you know, where do you, how do you approach that? And uh, I think yeah. you did a fantastic job of that. You really well, did bring something new. Writing about someone who's written, been written about so extensively, but, but the best book about Bob Dylan is by Bob Dylan. Yes. <laughs> I've been reading, rereading Chronicles uh, while I was reading yours because it's just such a fun thing to sort of hear your voice and hear his voice. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, Chronicles was another one of his great jokes, you know, all these books. And then he just kind of sidles in and writes the best one. Right, right. <laughs> where do you go after that? And I, I, I kind of try to find my own way of where I go after that. But really, you know, the, the, what he was, I mean, for me, what he was basically hinting at with Chronicles, apart from anything else, was how you write a book about Bob Dylan, which is this kind of movement, this this multifarious movement itself within the book, 
that he was that he was doing. You don't copy it, but you 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 hopefully get inspired by by thinking, well, that's how you get inside the mind and and history and songs of Bob Dylan by by looking closely at at, at how he did it in Chronicles. The the, the weird nature of time all seeming to happen at once and everything that happened happened, you know, because he knew it was good. So something like 19, you know, he writes about the 1990s. It's as if he, he kind of knows what's happening now. And when he writes about the 1960s, yeah. it's like he, he already knew what was happening because of course he does, he's lived his life. And I, I wanted to get that across a little bit rather than just plodding through the, the chronology and also how, if if Bob Dylan is so important, which I think he is, it also occurred to me that it was important that anything one does, anything you do about him yourself, has to be astonishing because otherwise he he wouldn't have had such a great impact on you. So I wanted to do something that 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 in my own way said, look, Bob Dylan's meant an awful lot to me in terms of how he uses language, how he treats the history of music. That that I have to get as close to that as I possibly can if I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, mm-hmm. It's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. I mean, not amazing. Chronicles is very much. I feel like a very much a, a influential book on on a music figure. You know, it's, mm. I can't remember in the past, but like Chronicle, you know, he chose like at least three segments in his life or three you know t- time periods. And you know, nowadays there's so many. There, there's uh, not. There's a few, a great few of uh, of music memoirs that that have came out that just deals with that person's like childhood or be, right before they made their their hit record or or you know so forth and and um it's interesting how dylan just focused on three segments yeah and i'm sure for a lot of the readers like well gee this is this you know th- this is not really the 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 area that i'm interested in i'm much more interested like when him and and joan Baez are together you know i want to hear a story about you and joan you know <laughs> but he avoids that and he goes into his own world, and it's you know, it's, it's really a remarkable work and a book. Well, I love that idea that you know he, what he's basically saying is uh, you know this is what I'm interested in, and if you're interested in me, then you should be interested in what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to give you what you're interested in. I'm going to yeah. give you what I'm interested in. I, <laughs> I, 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 it's just part of his. Um, I don't know if it's stubbornness, but just his, his commitment to to what he's doing. He, he, you know, it's the reason why. Um, his songs, the way he performs them live, has changed so so radically over the years. You know, he's not going to repeat them faithfully again and again and again. He's still looking right. inside them, and 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 in a in a funny sort of way, he's still trying to finish them off, even though some people would consider that they've been long finished. Not in not in Dylan's mind. No. And I've managed to get that across in Chronicles as well. This this sense that nothing, everything is always provisional. You know, it's always this sort of um, sense of uh, avoiding resolution. You know, it's it's, it's always right. the need to keep moving and 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 keep moving with the same thing the same song the same bit of his life um and then the song takes on a life of its own i think as well it you know if it's if it's really working it changes in your own imagination definitely i mean i think that's what any great artist is always doing Mm. they're just constantly pursuing how to keep you know refining and getting closer and closer to some ideal that's kind of what being an artist is so I think it, it was also kind of frustrating for him in a way that by recording a song, you know, he had to sort of deliver a supposedly a fixed version. Uh, right. which was for him, there was just a, a, a that was that moment, and 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 I do that's why I love even the the, the awful live albums, the so-called awful live albums. I love all his live albums, all the because <laughs> you can see him still sort of you know just just checking whether whether he's finished or just checking that he achieved what he what he thought he was going to do. Right. And he's, He's analyzing his own his own material in a historical sense as well. You know, he's, he's, he's so alive in his mind that he's 
he's keeping it uh he's keeping it um on on the hold whether he's actually completed anything yet you know right. now you write a lot about how the pandemic ended up changing your book i guess you had started it before that yeah. and then of course the bombshell of the album rough and rowdy ways which yeah. was incredible and yeah. I felt like, you know, such a bomb that we all needed when, <laughs> during lockdown. Yeah. But uh, talk a bit about how that all changed uh, your book. Well, that was an incredible thing because how I originally envisaged it was sort of February. So I, I started thinking about it February last last year. And what I was going to do, I was going to go and see him on that uh, last year's uh, never-ending tour. I was going to come over to the Hollywood Bowl. I was had it all worked out and that was going to be the Our first. neck of the woods. Exactly. I was already, I could have come and seen you. And yeah. um, <laughs> that was nice. in that book, that way, and then um, uh, this 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 astonishing um, change in everyone's lives happened very quickly. And by the end of March, no never-ending tour, which was extraordinary. The never-ending tour had kind of ended, which we we, we didn't mm. think would happen until the you know the the real end of Bob. And um, and then I was thinking, well, you know, I've got to slightly rearrange how I, I work on this book, which was obviously beginning to become the one thing I was concentrating on. And then out of nowhere materialized, um, you know, 17 minutes of Bob Dylan, like at midnight one night, you know, perfect for a writer. <laughs> out there thinking, what the hell am I going to write? <laughs> and suddenly something new happens. And, and of course, for, to some extent, people thought this wasn't going to ever happen again after after he started doing the, the Sinatra songs and the, and the show tunes yeah. and Tempest, right. like a long time since we heard um, apparently any new Bob Dylan songs. And, and so it was like a weird, you know, the, the, the way you get when you're writing something, you become, as you can probably tell, you become very self-obsessed. And it was like mm -hmm. this gift I had, you know, suddenly um, yeah. the book take on a, a different life and then another song appeared and then another song and then the album. And then other, the other thing that happened, of course, is that you know in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of an apocalyptic era as it, it increasingly seemed you suddenly realize that the most of bob dylan's songs had anticipated this sort of event because they had that quality of always dealing with emergencies and and dealing with um extraordinary devastating moments in history and and suddenly all of his songs that have that quality took on an extra vividness uh, and 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 this gave me the book. It gave me the book because suddenly I had a new Bob Dylan record. So the entire history of Bob Dylan had changed mm -hmm. overnight. Mm -hmm. So uh, other books would actually not be up to speed with that because this was mm -hmm. everything changed. And and I had it. And, and obviously, as you can probably tell, I there, there was levels of madness as I suddenly took this on board. I was in the middle of my own isolation. My new job was writing about Bob Dylan. I loved this job and. Um, uh, it, it, it kind of um, pointed me towards the fact that now I couldn't travel in the outside world. I could travel through Bob Dylan. I could travel through his mind. I could travel through his songs and, and the landscapes that they evoke. And it, 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 it gave me um, a better sense of what I wanted to write about Bob Dylan than the original idea. It was still there. I still wrote about the voices and went through the voices and how they changed, how many there were and, and how they come at you at different ways and, and the, even when he, you know, Chronicles was a Bob Dylan voice, Tarantula was a Bob Dylan voice, mm -hmm. but I, but I felt relieved in in a, a writerly egotistical way that I had a Bob Dylan book that I felt was different enough to not just be another Bob Dylan book. Your book is definitely not another Bob Dylan book. <laughs> um, uh, I was struck by you have a photograph of, of uh, Odetta in your book, and yeah. I know of Odetta, but I don't know her music. 
And, you know, then as I read on the book, I discovered, well, Odetta did a whole album of Dylan uh, songs. Yeah. And I think she's probably, uh, she's not the first. There was somebody named Linda Mace, Mason who recorded, did an all Dylan album, I think in 64. But Odetta, I think, came out in yeah. 65. And um, uh, are you familiar with that album? I mean, have you, did you listen to it? Which one? Odetta, sing, uh, oh, Odetta oh, oh. Sings Dylan. Yeah, no, I, Odetta, I'd, I'd, I'd known for, for a long time. Yeah, I didn't know it. I didn't know it until I read your book. You know, my favorite interpretations of Bob Dylan. And it was a really interesting time to do it because, in a way, that's when Bob Dylan was was, was moving away from what pe people thought Bob Dylan was. You know, the, right. the, the protest singer, the, 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 the voice of a generation, all these things that, that, that he hated and he needed to get somewhere else. And, and Odetta, who, who was also... Uh, managed by Albert Grossman and had been a huge um, influence on Dylan uh, in terms of giving him an idea how he could sing the blues, but in his own way uh -huh. and not a problem because Odetta was trained as an opera singer. So her way of singing right. those kind of songs was very different. And I loved the idea that in 1965, Odetta almost sang Bob Dylan songs for those that were, would be concerned that Bob Dylan now would never be the same again, because there was this wonderful souvenir, not by Bob Dylan, but by Odetta. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, one of the great influences on Bob Dylan that, that, that held Bob Dylan in place for those that wanted Bob Dylan's classics from that particular era to, to be always the one thing, you know, that, that, that she some, somehow created, you know, magical versions of them as if they were traditional songs that were centuries old or decades old. It, it was such a, a wonderful period because at that point he zoomed off into, you know, about 15 directions in the next few years just at that moment that people were getting used to the man who sang Tambourine Man and, and Odetta right. sang them like, you know, hymns. The, 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 she, she worshipped the songs in a way that Bob Dylan himself didn't, if you like. Yeah, I, I never heard the album until yesterday. And, oh, really? Um, I was really? Yeah, I never heard of it. I just did not know of it. It was just not on my radar. But listening to it, I thought, oh, my God, this is like a really a remarkable album. I mean, it's just her... her I mean, she's an incredible singer, of course. Yeah. But her just her attitude and and the, and the mm. choice of songs it was very hip. It was very uh, now at the time. It was just very yeah. You know, she. It seems like she had a really a fresh approach to his music from the very early time of the you know of of his work. Well, I think also um, it was it was very early to do that. It seems obvious now, and there's been many of them. The you know the thing yeah. of, a, of an album of Dylan songs, but that was like you say, were pretty much one of the first. And also, as you say, the arrangements were already beginning to be a little, um, they weren't as speculative as Dylan's himself, but they, they had a freshness to them that, that, yeah. that um, could show you that the way to, you know, there was many, many, there were, there were going to be many ways to interpret Bob Dylan's songs and Odetto is already beginning to feel that out. You know, now it, uh -huh. we, we kind of take it for granted, but at the time that was a very unusual thing to have happened. You know, it was very quick to have happened. Dylan mania seems to be in the air at the moment. Um, you know, it's like he's having this big comeback. It seems he had his 80th birthday yesterday, and it's like everywhere I went it was just Dylan, 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 Dylan yesterday. You know, and lately. Yeah. And um, why do you think that this octogenarian is suddenly enjoying his first number one song in the U.S. And you know, it's just uh, <laughs> such a, a newfound popularity. I, I was shocked that that was his first number one song. Murder, um, most, murder most, most, pal. 
Yeah, Murder Most Foul was his first number one hit in the U.S., which is kind of amazing. <laughs> Not bad for a 16-minute song. <laughs> I kind of think it just goes to show, you know, you get these awful pop groups that have had about 22 number ones in the in the you know the 2000s, and someone like Dylan never mm-hmm. had number one, but that was also part of the mystique in a way that that he, you know, Rolling Stone, like a Rolling Stone or something, which becomes monumental and it never actually reached number one. And you wonder what right. the hell, you know. Um, but I think also there, there, there is a sense, I mean, I, you know, especially when there's a birthday, like an 80th, although I, one of my favorite yeah. tweets was that um, Bob Dylan's changed his mind. It's not his 80th. <laughs> <laughs> Very but, uh, Dylan-esque. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea that he could just do that. And uh, and, and it's sure. funny, for him, it probably wasn't and isn't. But but it's just the idea that I think the focus that there, there has to be mm. on someone like Bob Dylan to maintain his importance as time moves forward, the world gets stranger. But you don't want to lose the idea that Bob Dylan's still around in centuries to come, like a, a Mozart or a Picasso or a, right. you know, a, a James Joyce. You, you, you want him to, to keep going because he, he should, because he tells you so much about being alive at any time you're alive. You know, whatever century you're alive, those songs are going to still be valid. That's what I found last year. These songs that were written in, in, under different circumstances for different reasons meant, meant so much during, you know, the, the, that, that weird, the, these weird times that we're in now. You know, Dylan yeah. is one of the few songwriters that really can convey you know the the weirdness the the awfulness the darkness the 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 fear of, of such a time and i think uh you know the, the dylan has these weird comebacks every now and then you think he's wandered off into the woods and we'll never see him again and then suddenly he's back in town again you know and his name is up in lights and that's what i've always loved about dylan as well just as you think he's disappeared into into the desert and and that's it we'll never see him again he's, he's back in town uh, uh and he's as alive Ever. And I loved it last year with his, his internet materializations of these songs, how suddenly contemporary yes. he felt, you know, the, this mysterious reveal. Um, there was no mm-hmm. announcement, there was no sense of him coming, he just, yeah. there he was. And it, it felt very contemporary. It reminded me of uh, David Bowie's release of The Next Day, yeah. like this all of a sudden on his birthday, you, yeah. you thought that Bowie was gone. For, I mean, I thought Bowie was gone for yeah. sure at that time. Never, he'll never come out of retirement. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you get the new song, you get a video, yes. and you know, and I think the album just came right afterwards. And and listening to the Dylan's uh, last release, it, I got the same feeling that feeling like, wow, what? Huh? Yeah. You know, it was like this sort of, uh, I felt really excited by myself <laughs> in isolation, um, listening to a new Dylan piece, which is number one, came number one, oddly enough. But it was yeah. such a magnificent piece of, uh, I don't even want. It's like sort of beyond music to me. It's a, it's a it's almost like a theatrical yes it was presentation of a song or I don't know yeah, how to describe. I, I, it. I absolutely agree, and I think that theatrical quality is something that that really separates him from a lot of other kind of rock musicians in a way. It elevates him way above that because there is that weird sense that even as he was um, really uh, you know these songs were materializing. I don't even know what the word is anymore. They're not released. They just materialized. He was still invisible, you know, because a lot of um, musicians, they were so panicky at the beginning and during the lockdown that they would yeah. just sort of end up mm-hmm. strumming guitars on Zoom with a dog at their mm-hmm. feet, their album collection behind them. <laughs> yes. It was sort of sentimental and, and just wrong somehow. It wasn't a new kind of performance, but I loved that Dylan somehow made a way to make such a performance 
uh, but he was still invisible. He he was nowhere to be seen. I just loved that. And it was so Dylan that Dylan found a way yeah. to do just like a, a puff of smoke and, and, and he was gone. But then he was never there in the first place. But there was a song suddenly, you know. And for Americans, I, I, I'm presuming Europeans and people around the world, but specifically for America or Americans, hearing that song, because it deals with the Kennedy assassination and the whole culture yeah. of the Kennedy assassination, to hear, you know, it was such an emotional uh, upset in, yeah. in, in my life as a child when Kennedy got shot. It was like, oh my God, he was like the first person I realized who died. Nobody mm -hmm. died in my, in my existence. You know, Kennedy was the first one. So I think for a lot of Americans of a particular generation and afterward, hearing that song specifically at the height of the lockdown period had for sure a profound effect on, on listeners uh, on many levels. I think also it's interesting mm -hmm. that history was, you know, Dylan was doing what he does really well as a historian. You know, he writes history within a song. Yes. And, and I loved how the, 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 the story that begins with something, like you say, that was so important to 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 that time for people who were were living through it, this this extraordinary change in dimension with the assassination of Kennedy, and and Dylan reveals it like a piece of history and then unfolds it into a kind of um, a, a celebration of music, a celebration of popular culture, a celebration of 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 of, of another history of America, and, and and somehow manages to pack other songs into that one song. Uh -huh. as if you know the song itself could just go on forever and it seems to go circular because at the end he almost says play murder most foul and you begin the song again yeah and it seemed to be the what, what struck me when i just thought it was only going to be that song and we weren't going to hear any more uh from, yeah you know i thought that it was an extraordinary way of of him representing what's in what has been important to him you know this extraordinary um death of a of a, of a young political figure that that resonated with people of the age of Dylan, but also this this wonderful, almost, you know, like his radio show, he was almost playing music within the song, playing mm -hmm. other music, generously acknowledging this other music. I just thought that was an extraordinary way of, of representing a complicated history of, of post-war America. It's interesting how he does that. I mean, you know, him, you know, showing history through his songs, but also him, you know, doing the radio show is him doing show and tell and exposing. Yeah another sort of history. And then um, he seems to do that a lot. Oh, and then him, you know, covering um, mm. sort of the great American songbook. You know, the mm. first album was focused on Sinatra, or it seems to be. I'm not sure if that's really true or not. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, but it's, again, it's him, like show and tell what he appreciates. And yeah. he wants to expose this to his fans or to whoever's out there listening, you know, and it's, uh, um, it's very generous when an artist does that. I feel when Bowie did pinups, he was very he was very generous to share his yeah. culture to to his new listeners or you know his fans it's true as well and with the with the radio show i thought what was generous about that as well was 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 him sort of you know shining the light in dusty corners and lots of a lot of mm -hmm. misfits and eccentrics that otherwise might have been completely forgotten dylan is pulling them out and saying look these these are these are important stories that need to be heard again and again and again we mustn't let them disappear it was almost like a kind of What's you know what's what's going to happen with this new you know era of streaming and uh, downloading? That some of these songs they might completely disappear forever. They might become extinct, and you should be caring about this as much as you care about you know animals becoming extinct because there's there's so much life and soul in these songs. We mustn't let them disappear. And uh, I think I, I think there's a sense of everything he does contains elements of that as well. 
the maintaining of, of certain traditions and the best way for him to maintain tradition is sometimes to be very unorthodox about it, but he's keeping something alive that otherwise might completely disappear, which, you know, would be devastating. Uh, in, in his book Chronicles, when he talks about his early, you know, performance years, it's, 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 it was great that he mentioned Tiny Tim to me. Yeah. I mean, like that came out of nowhere, like Tiny Tim, you know, I sort of knew Tiny Tim's history, but most people only in America know Tiny Tim because he had a big hit song. It was a novelty song or, you know, to a lot of people. And he was on a a, a comic, a comedy show uh, on American TV. And that's it about Tiny Tim. But for Dylan to give importance to Tiny Tim, at least for Dylan's point of view, um, again, is generous, but it also it's like... uh, it's like him turning a, a quick right or a quick left. Maybe you think he'll talk about Joan Baez or yeah, David yeah, Von Rock or, but no, he's talking about Tiny Tim. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, I think it's incredible. Um, what do you think about the whole uh, Nobel Prize thing? Um, do you feel like this somehow legitimizes pop music or did it need to be legitimized? Why do we care about these things? What do you? What's your take on all that? Yeah, it was always intrigued why people were so scared he got it. They were so angry that he got it. I don't know whether it, uh-huh. there is a, a kind of cultural. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, the the idea that just because Dylan didn't necessarily use the page or the canvas or or, or uh, you know be an artist in a, in in a way that the institutionalized establishment had accepted what an artist was that he did it through song that somehow that that, that he is just a pop singer that somehow that that it's like weight and it, it's obviously you know an attempt to to push back something down to the, the level of trivia when it clearly isn't I mean I absolutely adored he he won the Nobel Literature Prize not least because you know one of the biggest Dylan artifacts for me. Was you know was tarantula the mm-hmm. the the wonderful whatever you want to call it novel poem explosion of language that he that was published as a kind of cash in in the early seventies. I mean, I I loved it as a as a young kid because it just made me just get so excited about language and about what you could do with words and what a sentence was and what a story was and and the energy that it captured seemed to be such an extraordinary way of, of representing the inexplicable. So I loved it as a piece of literature. And, you know, in, in, in that history of the Nobel Prize, you know, people like Samuel Beckett would get the, the, the prize. And, right. you know, you, mm-hmm. you felt like, well, why not Dylan? You know, just because he sings those words, mostly, it didn't seem to be any less an extraordinary way of using language and believing in language and understanding language. So I, I loved it. And, and and found it bizarre that people got so upset about it. You know, it seemed to be so important that somehow this body of work, if it's you know, if some of this other stuff's being recognised, then then surely Dylan as well. You know, something there was something I did the other day, and one of the questions was, you know, do you think the academic world co-opted Bob Dylan? Mm-hmm. That is, mm-hmm. if they they sucked all the goodness and, and life out of him and and just froze him in in time, but I felt it was almost the other way round that he co-opted them. You know, he bent them <laughs> his way. Mm-hmm. So I loved it, you know, and, and thought it was just spectacular. I mean, he 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 wouldn't care one way or the other to some extent because it's not what he's doing. But on the other hand, I'm sure he had a quiet a quiet word with himself of of, of pleasure, you know, and delight. Because it's just such a wonderful thing to come out of nowhere, to come out of you know a small yeah. place in America and, and and just take hold of things in another area where you know for where he actually is. It just goes to show how how much um, 
force he managed, so much energy, so much momentum he managed to create. So I, 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 I was delighted and, and I'm still delighted about mm-hmm. it. <laughs> well, he certainly deserved it. I mean, he's definitely on par with any of the other recipients in my mind. Yeah, um, just because just yeah. it's on the page, just because it's not, you know, published in a conventional. I mean, and I personally, with Tarantula and definitely with Chronicles, he proved that, that you know, he's no slouch when it comes to putting things on a page. You know? Right, right. right. Um, it's interesting, kind of uh, along the lines of this academic pursuit. I think also, you know, the, all the bootleg series, I'm always sort of yeah. intrigued by the fact that to me, it's sort of like akin to looking at an X-ray of a great painter's canvas and discovering another painting below. Um, you know, that we're, we're just kind of looking for all of the ways that things built up. And, you know, I, I wonder, like, I, why do we always want to sort of dig into, you know, an artist's work process and, and how much do we really glean from all of this, you know, but it's like, we also just can't sort of stop, you know, when we love somebody, we need to do that. Yeah. Sometimes I, I kind of wonder or worry that, it, you know, that the endless analysis and the endless forensic detail kind of ruins the mystery. But I think there's been so mm-hmm in the end that, that it's almost gone the other way that yeah as you say it's it's an x-ray of a painting rather than um a kind of autopsy sometimes you know i just wonder that it's just it just stops the the mystique but in dylan's case it's been so endless and so kind of uh, crazy um the the changes in a syllable or the change in a word or the the moment of, of arrival at a certain moment in a song that we can hear for ourselves um, I'm, I'm not, I don't get completely obsessed with it as some do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hearing uh, hundreds of hours of material, you know, but, mm-hmm. but, but for me, luckily it doesn't necessarily, you know, ruin the mystique or ruin the, the magic at the, at the heart of it by trying to explain it and, and somehow, you know, um, sort of make it have a resolution. It, it, it keeps, it keeps opening up new avenues of, of exploration. I sometimes think the songs do it themselves. You know, every time I hear Blood on the Tracks, you know, which I've been doing now for, you know, a good 40 odd years, it's, um, it's, uh, it seems to change itself. It seems to be something else. And then, and then to hear that there were other ways it was something else gives you a clue about mm-hmm. why I think the songs themselves still seem to be changing on the record itself. It's because he himself was moving around them to such an extent and moving inside them, working out what they were and how to, properly present them that they 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 never they never seem to settle down themselves even in in themselves let alone the other versions that you can hear yeah that's one of my favorite bootlegs actually that blood on the tracks with the million versions of every song (laughs) wasn't it It was just you know it's just i i i do love that idea that you know the the he's he's not just one planet there's 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 about 10 12 13 other planets that he's that he is as well within one hour You know. But the interesting thing, too, I think about an artist is mm. that a big part of being an artist is the editing process. What do you actually eventually put out for yeah. consumption? Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that speaks to a large part of uh, what makes an artist great as well. Well, there is that wonderful thing that, you know, the, the why did he leave certain songs off certain albums? And obviously the, the blind Willie McTell not being on Infidels caused some... Mm kind of confusion but i think i think you know he he alone knows really what what he's after you know what what belongs together what what needs to have a separate kind of life but there is that sense absolutely of 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 of, of what what for him is 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 at that moment of the complete version of something and pretty much you know you would say even when you hear the the, the other versions and and understand the songs that he left off a record he's he's pretty much there or thereabouts 
And again, that's what he wants. And so how, how can we deny what he wants? You know, <laughs> exactly. it time and time again, you know, even when he's gone off and wandered off, off the rails a little bit, uh, apparently, um, he, 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 you get the sense that he's doing that often to, to work out, to get to where he needs to get. And sometimes if it's a self-portrait or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. you know, at the time everyone's horrified, terrified, but, but someone like Dylan needs to go through those moments of almost research and development to, to piece together where he, he wants to get. He needs to, he needs, he needs it like a map and, and it may, it may seem a bit kind of, um, Ori, you know, it may, it may seem a bit off. It may seem to betray what he'd done before, but it never does really, because even the gospel era, you realize ultimately where where he's heading, and it, it, he needed to go where he went to get to where he's going next. Um, I think it's pretty remarkable that he's been on the same record label for his entire career, and yeah. um, I'm guessing that he's he's actually probably a pretty savvy businessman, despite his artistic temperament. Um, <laughs> Do you know anything about that? Do you know why? He, I mean, that's I, I was trying to think of any other sort of canonical artist that's had a similar long-term label relationship. I couldn't think oh, of anybody. Yeah, he, there was the, the, the Planet Waves before the flood era. I think that was Asylum in the mm-hmm. US. And um, was it Asylum, David Geffen? And, and Island in um, in the UK. I think there was a period of negotiation there. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Very, very fleeting. And it's one of those things that, as you say, you think, have I, have I made that up or imagined it? But certainly I think that era was, I think that was a period of negotiation. And I think that's interesting that he would want to stay with one. I mean, I thought it was great the way he almost set up John Hammond being his, you know, the greatest day in our man who discovered Billy Holiday. You know, he, he mm-hmm. somehow crosses sure. the issue that he ends up being Bob Dylan's day in our man. He seems to sort of, he knows excellence, you know, and, and I think he knows that um, there's something about being in, in one place, you know, helps helps the situation, helps the story, helps the 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 the, the progress, the bootlegging, the the aftermath, the way that it's all shaped. And he comes from a family of businessmen as well. You know, I, I kind of got annoyed when people got annoyed with the fact that he sold his publishing last year for how many hundreds of million. Mm-hmm. But he came from a um, you know, a background where, you know, it was good to see that you, 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 you were doing well, you know, mm-hmm. and I, Dylan wants us to know that he's doing okay, you know, he's doing well. <laughs> He's doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, fine. I kind of like that. I kind of like that uh, sort of sense that in the end, you know, his family were, you know, open shops and needed to, yeah. to make a bit of money, you know. Right. It just seems more like more Dylan cheekiness to me. <laughs> So how the hell do you put a value on the kind of memories and experiences? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, I kind of, that idea of a sellout, I can't quite understand it. And, and in a way, Dylan, in the sense that he, you know, sort of doesn't really exist. It's almost like the, the songs themselves have made that decision because they need to know their future's okay, you know? So they, right. songs themselves that have come alive and done the deal, you know? I always like the idea that Dylan just pretends he's got nothing to do with it, you know? <laughs> I remember there was somebody. He was. Um, he, he, there was a story where he was asked um, by David Geffen in the seventies, I think it was, to take part in some benefit, you know, and because um, uh, people did, and you know, and, and Dylan couldn't care, care one way or the other the charity things, and and and, and David Geffen says, you know, you've got to do it because uh, it's for charity and it's you know it's a benefit concert, and 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 Bob Dylan apparently just asked David Geffen, yeah, but who's it going to benefit? <laughs> I think I, I like that idea, you know. Yeah, you know, who's benefit? Do I benefit? Who benefits? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>
tell us a little bit about the title. Why did you choose that line from It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, to some extent, it seemed the law in the world of writing books about Bob Dylan that you use a Bob Dylan line mm-hmm. to, um, uh, you know, as part of the song. But it, but it, but for me, you know, it's one of my favorite songs, uh, Dylan songs, especially the version on uh, the Before the Flood um, uh, live album with the band, uh, the way that he perform, performs it. It's so spectacular. But it also seemed to me be very much about how Dylan you know, magically can appear to be disappearing and then he reappears. These these so-called comebacks, just as you think, you know, like in the 90s, mm. seems to again have, have faded away and didn't know how to make a record. He couldn't work out modern recording studios and then suddenly in 1997, there he is again and everyone calls it a comeback. It's like a comeback after comeback. So mm-hmm. for me, it was it was, it was my one of my favourite things about the book, the title. I was so mm-hmm. happy. And also I like the hanging on of, of the... Uh, you know, you lose yourself, you reappear, and then what he sings next, you suddenly find you've got nothing to fear. Alone you stand with nobody near. You know, it's almost like I'd, I'd want that whole, you know, when a trembling distant voice from clear startled your sleeping gears to hear that somebody thinks they really found you. I would have wanted all of that to be. <laughs> I could. But, um, you know, you just, for me, and I love the comma in it, you, you lose yourself, you reappear. And, and for me, this was... My endless fascination with Bob Dylan, just as you think he's, he's made one too many albums that may or may not be as good as, you know, Desire or Blood on the Tracks or Highway 61 or Blonde on Blonde. And then he he's, he, he's, he's reappeared again and he's made another strange live album. And then lo and behold, he's made another great record. And, and, and that sense that you must never, you know, bet on Bob Dylan um, having finished, which it proved last year with the rough and rowdy ways. You must never bet on Bob Dylan having um, completed whatever circuit uh, he, he's mm-hmm. got and and for me the title definitely did that you know yeah mm. i'm convinced he's got surprises for us even after he's gone <laughs> one of the surprises will be the never-ending tour just keeps going on you know yes <laughs> columbia exactly. recording artist bob dylan yeah. live again <laughs> <laughs> how many times have you seen him paul do you do you have you lost track <laughs> Well, you know, yeah, there was a time in the 70s when I was growing up, he didn't really do much. Um, so it's, it's lately that I've, I've joined in with a never-ending tour and, and you know, I get a, I, I get a chance to save up a bit and, and see him around you. You can get those tickets on the bobdylan.com website, you know, and you can get them in the front two rows. And, you know, the, the idea of sitting in a, a theatre you've never been before in or an arena in Paris or something or Oslo and, and being close enough to look into his eyes and, and, and see the anger. I mean, I've written about it in the book and I've seen it before. If there's an empty seat next to you, which sometimes bizarrely there is, the look on his face, I swear he's seen it and he's pissed uh, off, you know. Uh, <laughs> as well he should be. Is, is it, I love what you're saying, you know, the quickness of his mind and the, and the way, like you said, about the rolling thunder, these eyes darting about. He's taking right. everything in. You can really see him in taking everything in. And, and the fact that he's aged and his voice has done these extraordinary things, it sort of disintegrates into atoms and uh, yeah. becomes so sort of gnarled and, and beautiful, but ugly and fabulous, but decayed. And the extraordinary bravery of, of still wanting to perform when, when the, the pressure must be sort of immense physically and mentally, but he's still, right. I, I, I kind of love all that. So, like I say, I was already last year ready. I was going to try two or three last year, you know, um, on that tour because it just seems what a, what a, you know, what an opportunity. It's, it's like I say in the book, it's like seeing 
Picasso paint or James Joyce write. You know, it's like you've got this opportunity to see this. Someone who, 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 to some extent, seems as if he doesn't really exist, and you've got a chance to just see him. Uh, this extraordinary band he's put around him, uh, the, the lightness of touch, and uh, and and I, I still love to this day the idea that he could play a, a one of his greatest songs, and some people still don't know he's played it until about three weeks later when it suddenly dawns on them. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I believe he's got some uh, dates already scheduled for the next few months. Um, so he's easy to look. get back on that never ending tour. I dare look, you know, I kind of thought, Oh, I hope that, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, I haven't reached that age yet, but I've reached an age where sometimes you settle into your chair and you think, you know what, I think I might just stay here. And I was hoping that he didn't, you know, he wasn't going to settle in his chair and think, you know right. what, that might be it. So I'm glad that I'm glad there's signs of, of that happening. Cause that's going to be even more, and it is for everybody. Any form of that of, of performance event now is going to take on an extra kind of power. And and certainly those great, great the, some of the greatest performers of this era, when they come back, that's going to be mm. you know mesmerizing. I think. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear Dylan do some of the new material live. Can you imagine? Ah, oh, really? Heaven. <laughs> <When> <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Do- do you mm-hmm. see a comparison between uh, David Bowie and Bob Dylan? Well, the, the one comparison that I've, I've I've sort of seen is very much that sense that at the end of their life, when it's very difficult to maintain the, the energy, the creative energy, the, the sense of being original, in rock music that's very rare because it's been traditionally the sense that the bands and artists getting older tend to just re redo their repertoire and their, their newest material isn't necessarily as vivid as... as um, original as exciting as, as as out of nowhere is their first stuff you know when they were younger and dylan and 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 bowie definitely at the end of their lives seems to seem to have done something that funny enough only uh, the classical musicians the jazz musicians seem to have done which was they're still still mm-hmm. searching and questioning and and innovating at the very end of their lives when which is a monumental thing to do if you think that your life is running out and yet you're still committed mm-hmm. to trying to work mm-hmm. out how to write a song that that, that 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 is still original that is still unprecedented and, and it takes a lot of stamina a lot of courage a lot of yeah. uh, of, of genius to do that and, and not many you know not many rock musicians have ended um, their lives as 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 full of of, of of energy new energy as as Dylan and Bowie seem to have done yeah to me there's a similar train of thought between you know uh with dylan and bowie because mm-hmm. bowie himself always reinvents himself and yeah. you know since he passed away there's been a series of live albums released and they're really fascinating for me to hear because bowie himself is rearranging his music or his yeah. voice his voice is different uh either technical just because he's aging or just mm-hmm. out of his being an actor of sorts doing another character in that song yeah and, and um yeah i find that i just find them fascinating um you're i'm presuming you're, you're aware of brian perry's dylan-esque album well not only am i aware of it but i actually wrote the sleeve notes for it whoa oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> wow 
See, yeah. this, this is the problem with streaming. <laughs> yeah, I have that there. on CD. I'm going to have to go pull that out as soon as we're done. <laughs> oh, my remote's gone in the streaming era. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. That's okay. That's yeah, I, I kind of, um, I loved, uh, yeah, of, of all the interpreters of Bob Dylan, Brian Ferry, definitely, you know, one of my absolute favorites. Because he again, he brought, he brought new, you know, obviously in the way Hendrix did, and, and you know, I love Tom Verlaine's Cold Hands Bound and, and some others that seem to give yeah. new life. But you know, Brian Ferry treasured those songs to such an extent that he could come up with new angles of approach. You know, so I, I've always loved the idea of of a, of a great, unorthodox vocalist like Brian Ferry. You know. Um, you know, adoring those songs and and bringing things out of them that 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 you know no one else had thought of. So yeah, huge fan of of, of Ferry doing Dylan. Yeah, his, <laughs> his approach to Dylan is for me is like really unique because again, yeah. like Brian Ferry is a sort of a, and I mean this in the in in, mm. in a very positive way. He sort of manufactured himself to be Brian Ferry. You know, he's yeah, and identity Bowie did you know made himself Bowie. Yeah. And their approach to Dylan is like I, they definitely recognize another yeah. person who who makes characters. Like Dylan makes characters, and, and also the, the sense that the songs themselves have multiple identities too, mm-hmm. and they don't just you know repeat the the arrangement. They don't just repeat them. They they understand that they have a, a different kind of life, and that and that 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 you're absolutely right that they are. Each song is, is 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 a performance. Is more than a performance by by someone who understands the nature of performance. So the the right. fairy's getting inside something on a really elemental level that that's that's way beyond just singing a song. Right. You know, it's it, it, it it's almost as cool and suave as he obviously can be with Brian, but it's almost like it is a matter of life or death. You know, and also singing them uh, like great standards in the way that you know Dylan obviously did. You know mm-hmm. the, the the sonatas and the show tunes. I think that the, the respect that that someone like Ferry gives them is just what he would give to a to any other um, you know American standard. That they, they right. transcend their time. They 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 become monuments. They become pieces of of, of text that that must be worshipped. You know, right. and that still makes them. And he makes them sexy as well, which is interesting. You know, because. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> a really erotic quality that Brian can bring to a Bob Dylan song. But... <laughs> did, has Dylan ever commented on the Brian Ferry recordings? I don't think he did, but no, yeah. I don't. I don't know. He, he keeps that's one of the things he keeps quite inscrutable about, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, cause I remember in the sixties. I think he only commented he liked the recordings of Man for Man doing you know his. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm a big Paul Jones Man for Man fan, so I, I like them as well. I mean, I oh yeah, but, yeah. I think Bob felt they were no threat, so he was quite happy there. Ah. <laughs> I suppose he he did um, acknowledge the Hendrix because in a way that then sort of um, influenced his own. For, certainly, right. you know, before the flood that period, I think I think he acknowledged there that. That, that something had happened to a song that, that, that many, you know, he'd almost um, only he'd co-written it in a way that it was Jimi Hendrix's all along the Watchtower, you know. Again, and Hendrix is another person in my mind who sort of made himself into another character. I mean, he became more exotic, became more flamboyant or, yeah. you know, in the same way, the way Ferry and Bowie did. So I think those three sort of, see themselves in Dylan in that sense. I think they yeah. really see him in the true light as being a, uh, almost a fictional character or, 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 oh, or a theatrical you know, yes. person. 
And I think yeah. also by, by by doing that, and certainly with Dylan as the as the leader of that kind of idea, that that by, by inventing themselves as as fictional characters, they're basically getting out of the way of the song, oddly enough. Right. You know, they're letting the song be the thing. And yeah. they're almost sort of so present, so vivid, so obvious as as as, as their names and who they are and who we think they are. But right. in a way they're they're moving themselves out of the way by not being who they actually are. You know, they're 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 being theat- theatrical kind of characters that yeah. That therefore allow the song to really be the the important thing. It's it's it mm. is is a great kind of trick, you know. Wow. Now, Paul, obviously yeah. you're a huge Dylan fan. He's a big part of your life, but I think probably even perhaps more importantly for you, he's really influenced your writing style. Am I correct? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, for better or worse, you know. <laughs> I would say for better, for sure. <laughs> As a, you know, I I, I kind of loved. Um, the rhythm he could get into some words, the idea that he's exploring what a sentence is, what a, what yeah. a paragraph is, what a, what you know, how much you can pack into to so many, so few words to get an extraordinary amount of information across. Yeah. Certainly, the the sense of rhythm definitely would have mm-hmm. been when I was a kid influencing me and and wanting the sound of the words, even if they're on a page, to to be something you could almost dance to, you know. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact that he would. Um, uh, clearly be interested in in writers as well and even down to his name whether it did or did not come from dylan thomas you, you've got that google search again you know with dylan you <laughs> go off into all directions borges um uh dylan thomas you know the, the gertrude stein you 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 know you, you you would just get the sense that that at one point in his life certainly that mid-60s period all he wanted to do was sit at a typewriter and just 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 put words on a page, you know, with eventually Tarantula came, I uh, became, you know, just this sort of sequence of words on a page uh, following where they, where they would go. Um, it was very inspiring to me, the idea that you didn't have to worry too much about, 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 about punctuation. You didn't have to worry too much about mm-hmm. reality. that mm-hmm. uh, whether that was a bad thing or not, it, it drove me forward to really just want to, use words to express things that that, that actually are beyond words you know right. and um i loved i loved him so much as a as, as a writer that uh, it, you know in that big mix of things that influenced me when i started to write as a teenager dylan would have been right in there you know the books that i had around me as i as i worked at, at my typewriter in the 70s cross like mm. or tarantula was there surrounding me at all mm. times you know because mm. you you were stuck for a word. You didn't need to go to the thesaurus. You just flicked open tarantula and you had a word. Mm. Probably nice. quite a few reviews I wrote in the uh, in the seventies when I was a teenager, starting to write about music. That that you know, Bob Dylan was was a big hand on my shoulder. You know, took mm. a few sentences at me to put in the reviews. You know. Well, I think he's a big hand on all of our shoulders. It feels like these days, right? <laughs> he's an endless ocean. <laughs> well, fantastic, Paul. Uh, do you have anything you want to tell us that you're uh, working on for us in the future? We'll have well, you back again. You're you're quite the friend of the podcast now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I fill it off. I have just um, I finished a book on um, the uh, head of um, Factory Records, Tony Wilson. Oh, oh, we'll definitely have you back for that. That fun. will be fun. <laughs> Finished his biography. So I went, you know, I was kind of working on Bob Dylan and Tony Wilson at the same time. Oh, that's an interesting combination. <laughs> Talented, you know. Wow. Um, 
Although, you know, Tony was a huge Bob Dylan fan. I mean, he's he? at the end of his life, you know, what he's going to be oh. playing and did play when he when he was dying was indeed a lot of Bob Dylan. You know, he, 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 he Bob Dylan, the cat, the, the sense of humour of Bob, the mischief of Bob Dylan as much as anything else would be an influence mm. on like Tony, you know, mm. not, not necessarily the songs. Although, oddly enough, the first ever concert he ever went to was Peter, Paul and Mary. <laughs> really? Wow. But, uh, yes, anyway, uh, the, 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 uh, hopefully I'll be back to talk to you in a little while. Oh, definitely. And about the yeah. Tony Wilson on my life. But of that, of that whole factory record set, did did Dylan had or Manchester? Did Dylan had a, a presence with other um, musicians of that generation? I mean, I know Howard Devoto of magazine Buzzcocks is pretty much a Bob Dylan fanatic. Am I correct about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean. You know, to some extent, that that was interesting when punk came along. There was a sense that you know people like Bob Dylan were were not necessarily identified as influences because mm-hmm. it was almost too much, and you had to get away from that in a way. You had yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Yes. New, you had to get away from the. It was like in Liverpool, the Liverpool music in the seventies had to ignore the Beatles completely, right? Insulting them because it was just too overpowering. Yeah, and Manchester had its own Dylan, you know, Dylan myth because, of course. Judas actually happened yes. in Manchester. Although for time, people thought it was at the Albert Hall, but it was in Manchester. It was a, yes. a picky local commie folk fan who was. <laughs> was, was He's the Judas. Back <laughs> on the on the on the on the message, you know. Yeah. And, uh, it, it was typical that it was a man that uh, shouted Judas, you know. Yeah. So we we had Dylan in our. In our in our atmosphere, now, you know, when I started writing, the first thing I ever did was a fanzine called Out There, and I put Bob Dylan on the cover, right in the middle of punk. Wow! Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think the Rolling Thunder era of Bob Dylan, you know, he's as punk as yeah. any. He was as punk as anyone in the '60s, but the Rolling Thunder thing is as punk as anyone. But like yeah. I said, a lot of those musicians then had to either explicitly turn away or pretend to turn away because right. they needed to they needed to get away and, and almost sort of begin again, you know. Yes, and right. the way yeah. the villain right. happened. You know? I can understand yeah. that. Well, so Paul Morley, you lose yourself, you reappear. Bob Dylan and the voices of a lifetime. I love the book. Kimley loves the book. And thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Uh this is your second time here and I am totally Fascinated with Tony Wilson. So I just can't wait for your take on Tony Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're very much looking forward to having you back. Thanks, Kimberly. Just a lot. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to Book Music. And uh, join us next time when we'll be discussing Roxy Music's Avalon on 33 and a third. Finally, finally, 33 and a third has a Roxy Music book. I don't know why it took so long. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have Simon Morrison, the writer, on with us to discuss it. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all of our latest news. And we've got playlists for every episode on Spotify and Apple Music. And you can get links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you, everyone. And thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>